do you want to be healed? Amazingly, some people really don't want to be healed. And I think Jesus asked him this question because some people find their identity in their pain. This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Do you want to get well? This is Jesus' first question to the man at Bethesda, and it's a question that Jesus asks us as well. At times, if we're honest, it's more familiar for us to stay in a victim mentality, but the probing question is this, do we really want Jesus to heal us? Here's David in a message called, Two Questions. Well, this is the word of the Lord from our text in the Gospel of John as we continue our journey through John. We'll probably be here for about another year or so, and we look forward to all that God's going to reveal to us in these verses. Let's begin in John chapter 5, verse 1, the first two words, after this. Well, after this means not only when the Roman official's son was healed in the last passage we looked at last week, but after this also implies several months because Jesus is now back in Jerusalem at a feast. Uh, Most scholars think it, it is the Passover celebration. We're not sure every Jewish male was required by law to go to three different feasts every year, and one of them was the Passover. So we've now moved from Cana in Galilee back to Jerusalem some months later, and Jesus has yet another encounter with another man. So after this, after several months, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Uh, Anytime you go to Jerusalem, you go up because Jerusalem is built on a mount. Uh, So Jesus had to go up into Jerusalem now. Look at verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. The word Bethesda means house of mercy. Uh, Beth in the Hebrew is always house and Esda means mercy. So Bethesda is a house of mercy. Now, which, was, which had five roofed colonnades. Uh, in these lay a multitude of invalids. Let's stop there. Interestingly, you have in specificity here, John telling you exactly what is in existence when Jesus walked into this place. There's a pool in a place called Bethesda with five roofed colonnades. And as you look at archaeology, you know that they have gone into this area of Jerusalem and unearthed a lot of things which prove John's accuracy in describing these details. Now, Most all of you know, I have a complete and utter reliability in the absolute authority of the scripture. There are many reasons for that, and most of them are very plausible. One of them, though, is archaeology. If you look at the science of archaeology, we hear all the time today, follow the science, follow the science. Well, follow the science about archaeology. And if you look at what archaeology has discovered in relationship to what the Bible says, there's no, absolutely none, misinterpretation or misunderstanding of what the Bible clearly teaches. And it is true with all of these things as well. There's been a pool that's been unearthed in this area called the House of Mercy. There are five colonnades that are roofed. They have been discovered in the ruins and in some ways actually even rebuilt today. So archaeology only affirms what the Bible teaches. And here's yet another example of that. So as Jesus is going into Jerusalem at the Sheep Gate in a pool called called Bethesda, um, he then sees a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. This is not a beautiful place, folks. Uh, This is a desperate, 
difficult place. You can only imagine if the place is filled with people who are blind and lame and paralyzed, they don't have a way to take bathroom breaks. There was probably an awful stench and smell there. It's at the sheep gate. You can only imagine that's where the sheep entered Jerusalem, especially for the time of the Passover. And you know what sheep often do on the ground as well, creating a really bad smell. So Jesus enters a place that is not particularly attractive or beautiful. And it makes it even worse to think that there are multitudes, probably Dozens, maybe even hundreds of people who are blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, you see that verse 4 in some of your translations has a parenthesis around it. That's because verse 4 is not in the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. We have 25,000 New Testament manuscripts, more than any other literary document in the history of the world. And as we trace those documents back to their earliest sources, Verse 4 is simply not found there. Now, verse 4 states that the reason all of these blind, lame, and paralyzed people were at the pool of Bethesda is there was a rumor that an angel would occasionally come down and stir the waters. And when those waters got stirred, the first person to jump in got healed. Now, we don't know how that particular rumor got started, but it definitely was one. And we'll see later in verse 7 why that rumor was there. But we don't have, again, verse 4 in the earliest manuscripts, but it suggests why all of these people were around the pool at Bethesda. Verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid 38 years. Now, I want you to pause with me for a second. One man in this pool had been an invalid for 38 years. Marilyn and I pastored a church for almost 39 years. That's a long time. We, we loved that church, still do. And interestingly, this man had had this problem of lameness longer than a lot of people during that day even lived. Uh, most people didn't live in that day beyond 30 or so. So this man had been lame for a long period of time, 38 years. We don't know exactly how long he had gone to that pool, but it was a regular place where he went. Verse six, and when Jesus saw him lying there, now let's stop there for a second. One of the most beautiful things about Jesus' life is as he was intimately connected to the Father, what we Christians believe is one God in three persons, the Father sent his Son into the world. The Father and the Son were so intimately connected that Jesus heard the Father whispering him regularly, I think, go touch that person's life. Go touch that person's life. And we see, for example, that Jesus saw Nathanael in chapter 1 before he ever came to follow Jesus under a fig tree contemplating who the Messiah was. Jesus had the Father whisper into his ears, that's Nathanael, he's seeking you. And then we have, for example, uh, the woman at the well. Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment with a woman at the well. I think the Father whispered into his ears and said, you've got to go through Samaria and you're going to touch that woman's life. And then last week he had a spiritual discernment as the Roman official came to him and said, my boy is on the point of death. And Jesus said to him, go back home, your boy lives. How do you know that? Unless the father in heaven whispered to him, the boy is alive. 
the boy is healed. And Jesus only heard the whispers of the father when he did anything that he did. And I would suggest to you that all of us have that same whisper inside of us if we are connected to Jesus. Jesus says later in John 17 that as he is connected to the father, so we are connected through him to the father as well. That means we can hear those whispers. And all throughout our days, we should be able to hear the whisper of the father say to us, go touch that person. Go pray for that person. Go love on that person. And he'll give us the picture and maybe even the name of that person that we're supposed to give a moment of hope to. That's why we named this church Moments of Hope Church, because we want all of us who are hopesters to regularly give a moment of hope to people in this world. And here, I think, as Jesus marched into the colonnade area, the pool of Bethesda, I think the father whispered to him as well, this man. This lame man is the one that I want you to care for today. So Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. It doesn't say if it was for the entire 38 years, but he had been by this pool for a long time. And Jesus said to him, folks, the most important question that I want all of you to consider today. It is an absolutely essential question that you must answer as you follow Jesus and try to be faithful to him. Here's what he asked him. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Amazingly, some people really don't want to be healed. And I think Jesus asked him this question because, you know, some people find their identity in their pain. You wonder with this guy, for example, was he finding his identity in people pitying him? Or maybe this was a place of safety where he didn't have to worry about being harmed in any way. Maybe it was comfortable for him to be there. Maybe it was his source of income. Maybe he also begged in his lameness and people came and dropped coins before him and that was his way of sustaining his life. Or maybe he was just stubborn. He just didn't want to get well. You know, I've experienced people in ministry through the years who just don't want to get well. They actually are stubborn and like their life the way it is. And maybe this guy just wanted sympathy because people would come by and offer him that sympathy. Again, maybe his identity was in all of this and he didn't really want to get well. Uh, Jesus asked him the question, do you want to get well? Dear friends, the truth is if you are experiencing a problem and you go to someone for help, uh, say for example, your marriage is in trouble and you come to me. The first question I'm going to ask you is this one. Is the back door locked from the outside? That's the first question. Every one of you who's gotten marriage counseling from me, you know that's one of the things I say to you in marriage counseling that the covenant you make with one another, when you say for better or worse, richer or poor, sickness and in health, as long as I may live, forsaking all others, that is an exclusive covenant where you are promising to the other and to God, I'm locking the door from the outside. I can't get out. So if I've got a couple coming to me, struggling with marriage, I wanna know, are you contemplating divorce? Because if you say to me, yes, the door is locked from the outside, then I'll say to you, okay, let's go to work. But if you say to me, no, that door is still open a bit, we might walk out, I'm gonna say to you, there's nothing I can do to help you. There is a huge difference between a want to and a how to. 
What's happened a lot in ministry is we have sermon after sermon after sermon that deals with how to make your marriage better, how to follow Jesus better, how to have a better prayer life, all of these how-tos. But dear friends, if you don't have the want to first, then the how-tos don't make sense. So that's why I say to couples, do you want to stay in this marriage? Is it a possibility you might leave the marriage? And if I hear that possibility, I'll say, there's nothing else I can do for you. But on the other hand, if they say to me, the back door's locked from the outside, and if you're struggling in your marriage right now, go there first. That's where you've got to go. You've got to say the back door's locked from the outside. I always tell couples, practice the five-year rule. If you're struggling right now in your marriage, lock the door from the outside and say, for five years, we're going to work on this marriage. We're going to really work hard on this marriage. And I had a couple come to me a couple of years ago that said, we did that. We settled on the five-year plan. At the end of the five years, we'd fallen in love all over again. Why? Because they did the great want to. They locked the door from the outside. Then they started getting marriage tips on how to spend time together, how to love one another well, how to honor each other, how to look at each other's gifts and appreciate them and their uniqueness. That's what you've got to do too. Once you get the want to settled, then you can start on the how-tos to do it better. Well, Jesus, with this man, asked him the question, do you want to get well? It's a great, important question that he needed to answer because you'll see in the next verse, it appears he may not have wanted to get well. Look at verse seven. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. And when the water is stirred up and while I'm going another step down before me, someone gets in the way <laughs> that he's basically saying here that verse four, that's not in the most recent manuscripts. He is giving us insights into why he thought getting into that water was so helpful. And, and he offers an excuse after Jesus asked him the question, do you want to get well? He says, you know, every time I try to get into the water, the, the blind guy who has a hearing giftedness can hear the water stirring and gets in before me. And then this other paralyzed guy has his family member there and pushes them into the pool when the water stirs and gets in before me. So he just offers excuses after excuses. And Jesus, I think, understands by looking into his heart, he really didn't want to get well. And if you start offering excuses, folks, for why you're not getting well, you don't want to get well. You really don't. And at that point, you're playing the victim card. When you play the victim card, you're never going to get well. You are either a victim or a victor. Those two are the only possibilities. And if you play the victim card, oh, poor me, you know, if I leave this pool, I won't get any more money. And, you know, these people give me sympathy every day. I have some comfort here. It's predictable. I'm stubborn. I don't like change at all. You know, the only people that like change are babies with wet diapers. I don't like change at all. And I'm going to stay in this position. So that's why he starts offering excuses. It looks like he liked being in that position. It was a place that he found identity and comfort. And that's what Jesus knew. And that's what he gave insights into. And you see here how the rumor of angels stirring the water and someone jumping in, getting well, maybe that happened at some point in the history of the pool of Bethesda, or maybe again, it was just a rumor that got started. But this guy really believed it was true, but he offered excuses when Jesus asked him the very pointed, powerful question of, do you really want to get well? Then we keep moving on in the narrative. Jesus said to him, get up, 
take up your bed and walk. He wouldn't let him be a victim. He wouldn't let him give excuses. He wouldn't let him play the blame game. Like when Adam and Eve rebelled and, and, and God came to them and said, why did you eat of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And Eve said, well, the serpent made me do it. And then God approached Adam and Adam said, well, the woman made me do it. And we've been playing that blame game ever since. And Jesus wouldn't let him do it. He wouldn't. He said, no, you get up, take up your pallet and walk. No more excuses. No more victimhood. It's time for you to take responsibility of your life. And at once, at once, the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now, let me do a pause here just for a second because I think it's very important that I do so. Um, people ask me regularly, David, why is there pain in the world? Why is there human suffering? And let me give you the four reasons biblically that there is human suffering and pain in the world. First of all, Genesis 3, the fall. That when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they invited corruption and sin into this world. It consumed them, it consumed all of creation. And every single part of creation is broken. Every part, corrupted. And awful things have happened because of that. And we live interdependently with one another. We are connected with one another. So there are times that we're just going to have suffering and pain because we live in a fallen world. In Romans 8, Paul talks about how creation and our bodies themselves are groaning and longing for that day when Jesus returns and makes everything right again. Simply by living in this world, you're going to have tribulations. Jesus said so, John 16:33. in this world, you who love me even are going to have tribulations. So some bit of pain in this world is caused by simply living in this world. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David joins me in the studio in a discussion about his latest Davidism. We'll be right back. This is the Ministry Minute, focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. I'm Mark McManus, and here is Jim Noble with the Dream Center Charlotte. Hello, my name is Jim Noble with the Charlotte Mecklenburg Dream Center. And Bo and I, the director of the Dream Center, just wanted to take a minute and tell you guys thank you. Moments of hope, David and Marilyn Chadwick, all of you there, Dean, uh, we all been phenomenal for us. Uh, you, you've been there since 08 when we started King's Kitchen and that kind of grew into the Dream Center and the meals we've fed the last eight weeks probably exceeding 55,000 now, I guess. Uh, we're so grateful you guys have made such an impact in the city by reaching out to those that have needs greater than we have. And uh, what do you think, Bo? Yeah, so it's been amazing to, to just watch the, the work that's happened um, with the meals as they've gone out. You know, uh, we, I always tell people it's not about the food, it's about the relationships that are formed and the ministry that takes place. And so, um, and JT Williams and Thomasboro and Reed Park, I mean, it has opened up doors that we never thought would be open. Um, you know, we've seen people come out um, and just welcomed us with open arms, just so grateful for the meals. And, and we just thank you, Moments of Hope, and just this couldn't be, this wouldn't be possible without you guys. And, you know, uh, the, the first call we made uh, when we decided to go this route and provide these meals was the Moments of Hope. And it was, uh, 
a phone call that was met with a resounding yes and so we're so appreciative of you guys and just um, everything you all do for us and for the kingdom and not only that but you uh, also set into our kitchen in the dream center now this week started producing meals there and as the restaurants open back up all the meals will shift to the dream center with the kitchen you helped us do so we're so grateful for you guys god bless you god bless moments of hope and we just pray an unlimited return harvest on the seed you sowed into this ministry thank you very much I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jen. In one of your morning e-devotions, you recently wrote about the dangers of keeping a bad apple around. Can you talk with us about this Davidism that's called, the only thing worse than making a bad hire is keeping one? Well, for the leaders out there who have to hire people in their organizations, uh, this is a truth that I have learned sadly, Mm -hmm. but I have learned it nevertheless. It is an important one for everyone to realize. So for all of you out there who have to oversee people and hire people, here is a truth you need to know. The only thing worse than making a bad hire is keeping one. Well, nobody's perfect, Mm -hmm. neither bosses nor their employees, and sometimes why Wise bosses make poor hiring decisions. It's inevitable. So, what should be done when you make a hiring mistake? If you can redeem the person, try. That's always the best outcome. But if not, you need to cut your losses as soon as possible and let the person go. If you don't, you'll likely pay for it later on. Jen, it is what you referred to earlier when you said one bad apple (laughs) spoils the whole bunch. Uh, We've heard that from our parents and other places as well. Mm -hmm. It's an important truth as well. So scripture says it this way. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way of death. That's Proverbs 14, verse 12. Hiring and keeping a bad apple can infect the entire team and destroy the organization. It's a way of death. When you let a person go, it often proves to be what's best for that person, though. They are given an opportunity to learn, to do something new for which they're better suited, and they get a fresh start, a clean slate, a new beginning. Jen, you know, I've been in ministry now for over 40 years, and sadly, unfortunately, I've had to let some people go. Interestingly, most all of them come back to me later on, years later, and say, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Oh my goodness, wow. I I learned from my mistakes. I became a better person myself. And I see now that God had me for a different place in a different situation so that I could be more Mm -hmm. effective. I've seen that lived out many, many times. So wise, experienced leaders have practiced this truth. The only thing that's worse than making a bad hire is keeping one. Mm -hmm. Practice it because indeed one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Well, and to the point, this is really good to the point of spoiling the whole bunch. I don't, I feel like when you have a a bad hire and you keep it around, you start expending valuable resources and this, this thing seems to swirl and get bigger and it's taking away from original vision. Yeah. On the one person Mm -hmm. who is the problem instead of on all the other people who are working together to make the team work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Indeed, sports enthusiasts know this to be true, that when there is one bad player on a very gifted team, that team does not function well. You've got to have everybody playing their role, doing their part, not only on the bus, but 
the right seat on the bus working together. And when that happens, success occurs. But again, only one can destroy that success. Only one can cause negativism to infiltrate the entire team or organization. Wow, this is powerful and empowering. Thank you very much. And leaders remember it. It's a hard truth, but it's an important one that the only thing worse than making a bad hire is keeping that bad hire. If you'd like more of these Davidisms to come into your inbox every morning, go to momentsofhopechurch.org. Subscribe there. They're free of charge. They're from my heart to yours to help you begin each day with a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message is from our online worship service, and you can be a part of our service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. And also check out David's weekly Hopecast. They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to pray for the strengthening of the church.